Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We are living through what is perhaps the last hurrah of the boomer leaders. It's hard to believe that it was only 28 years ago that we elected Bill Clinton, the first of only three boomer presidents, after having eight presidents from Ike to George H.W. Bush, who represented the greatest generation. Today, we have a cadre of boomers, all septuagenarians now, trying to make one last attempt in a world moving and changing faster than ever, I guess to try and keep the aging boomer legacy alive. As they do, a whole new generation is waiting in the wings. Soon, in the words of JFK, the torch will be passed to a new generation of Americans. Millennials shaped not by JFK, as so many boomers were, but by the memories of 9-11, endless war, and the financial crisis. Capturing the political zeitgeist of these millennials in this moment is my guest, Charlotte Alter. Charlotte Alter is a national correspondent for Time. She's covered the 2016, 2018, and now the 2020 campaigns. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and her new book is The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation of Leaders Will Transform America. Charlotte Alter, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. First of all, talk a little bit about some of the people, the 11 people that you profile in in this book, and a little bit about how you zeroed in on some of them. Some of them seem obvious today, but they might not have been obvious a few years ago when, when you started working on this. Right. So um, I this book follows recognizable people like Pete Buttigieg and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's one of the most high-profile members of Congress. Um, and, and it also you know, follows some of the other young women who got elected to Congress in 2018, like Haley Stevens and Lauren Underwood, um, and also some young Republicans like Elise Stefanik and Dan Crenshaw. Um, I also tried to include millennials who were making a difference on the state and local level. So I have mayors like Savante Myrick, who's the mayor of Ithaca, New York, and uh, city council members like Braxton Winston, who is a city council member in Charlotte, North Carolina, who got his start organizing with Black Lives Matter. Um, So what I did in trying to find the subjects of this book is I was looking for people born between 1981 and 1996, because that's the frame, the timeline for and I was looking for people whose lives had intersected in some meaningful way with some of these major events of the last 20 years. So people who served in Iraq and Afghanistan or people whose families were hit particularly hard by the financial crisis or people who worked to help elect o- Obama in t- 2008 or who then uh, you know, went on to work in his administration or people who went into the streets during Occupy or Black Lives Matter or who uh, you know, were part of the Bernie Sanders movement in 2015 and 2016. So I was really looking for people who uh, had experienced firsthand some of the major events that I knew had shaped how their cohort thinks about politics. And as you talked to them and as you got to understand the events that shaped them, particularly those that, that may have come out of the Occupy movement, etc., was there a sense of of the importance of leadership that they saw themselves or their colleagues or their contemporaries as the ones that people have been waiting for? Because the other side that you hear a lot from from some of those people is that it's really not about leadership, that it's from the bottom up, that it's about grassroots, as opposed to to sort of top-down leadership. Where did the millennials come down in that debate? 
So in some ways, you've just hit 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 the nail right on the head because in some ways, uh, so much of this generation's political challenge is about negotiating between those two things that you just mentioned. So, uh, you know, for some millennials, Barack Obama and his model of inspirational leadership uh, is kind of the, the, the model for what leadership is, a single transformative figure uh, who is, you know, has incredible rhetoric about hope and change. But uh, for other millennials, particularly those who were a little bit disappointed in Obama's, um, not failures, but in some of his shortcomings, particularly when it came to income inequality and racial justice, um, a lot of young people looked at Obama, and he was such a transformative figure, and they did still approve of him and admire him and love him. Um, but they saw that, you know, if if Obama can't fix income inequality, if Obama can't solve solve racial inequality in this country and structural racism in this country, then maybe it's beyond the power of any one single person to solve these major systemic problems. And, major, and, and, and maybe major systemic problems need to be met with systemic solutions. And those kind of solutions come from movements, vast networks of people um, like in Occupy and like in Black Lives Matter, where there's not one singular person who's in charge and calling the shots, but it's a more sort of grassroots, distributed, horizontal power structure. And I think that that's one of the things that's really unique about millennials is this idea in some of these movements that everybody's in charge and nobody's in charge and that there's a sort of networked quality to some of these movements that is very reflective of how people operate on social media. And and we see that, in fact, and you talk about this in two of the most high-profile people that you write about in Buttigieg, who really is, as you say, I think a fix-the-system kind of guy as opposed mm-hmm. to, to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who, where it's really about burning down the system. Right, exactly. And those and and in some ways, you know, that's the the final chapter of this book is about those two figures and how they kind of mirror and reflect one another, because, uh, listen, you know, uh, the 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 people who want to fix the system are going to have to understand some of the major structural criticisms that some of these grassroots movements have if they want to move forward. So they're going to have to get a little activisty, and some of the activists are going to have to start to work within the system if they want to get anything done. So I think the challenge for this generation and the big task they have, particularly among Democrats, is uh, figuring out how to marry those two sides of the Democratic Party. And that's frankly what's happening in the primary right Mm -hmm. now. How much have these millennials been influenced by the politics of their boomer parents? That's such a good question. Um, You know, one thing that I found is that, uh, you know, these millennials have certainly been influenced by their parents, but I, I didn't really find that they were influenced by their politics necessarily. What I did find is that Boomers uh, were one of the most hands-on generations in history in terms of their active parenting. In fact, the verb parenting didn't even become a thing until the 80s. That wasn't even something that people said that they were doing parenting in the 1950s. Um, It was just, well, my kids are over there and I'm over here. Um, Much less helicopter parenting. (laughs) 
Exactly, exactly. So, um, so many of the uh, more irritating qualities that people ascribe to millennials, like, oh, they're over-sheltered, or they're too sensitive, or they're, um, you know, they they can't take a joke, or they're snowflakes, or any of these other uh, kind of accusations that get hurled at millennials, a lot of those, you know, I'm not arguing that that's not true. Listen, I, I'm a millennial, and I know many annoying millennials, and there are many annoying boomers, and anyone can be annoying, right? Um, <laughs> But but what I'm saying is that some of those qualities can be traced back to a real evolution in parenting among baby boomers and, uh, you know, a, a, a really – a really new attitude towards parents' relationships to their kids, um, especially with things like enrichment activities and changing attitudes around bullying and changing attitudes around self-esteem that really influenced how this generation grew up. This comes back to the whole idea also of leadership and being and, and really trying to accomplish things through the process of winning something as opposed to just getting a participation trophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, that is one thing that I think we see uh, on the progressive left a little bit sometimes right now, is this idea that other outcomes besides winning also count as winning. <laughs> um and, uh, you know, sometimes you see particularly in movements, um, which makes total sense, by the way, in, in a movement with goals as big as some of these movements have, like, you know, cure structural racism, of course you have to position smaller victories and, and, and take them for what they are. You know, um, it's, it, it's impossible to, for anybody to wave a magic wand and automatically cure the ills that these movements are trying to heal. Um, but what I have noticed sometimes, particularly in the progressive left, is this idea of, you know, you know, an extremely progressive candidate will run for office and then they'll lose and then the movement will say, oh, but we changed the conversation. Oh, but we, you know, oh, but we, you know, turnout went way up or, oh, but we, you know, put this issue on the map. And all of that is true. I'm not trying to say that that's not true because, you know, even as we saw with Bernie Sanders losing in 2016, he did change the conversation. He did put major issues on the map. We are talking about issues like Medicare for all and student debt and climate change in a new way because he ran even though he lost. But but uh, there is sometimes this tendency to forget that only winning is winning. And uh, I have to say that that's something that Mitch McConnell never forgets. Right. To what extent, though, the way an 80-year-old, a 78-year-old at this point, becomes appealing to millennials? So I think, you know, it's in, in some ways Bernie Sanders is, in a lot of ways, the exception that, pro that proves the rule mm -hmm. about boomers. Because um, one of the reasons... You know, because he's a he's a he's an old man, uh, but he's an old man with new ideas compared to his cohort, which are largely old men with old ideas, right? And that is the thing that uh, ha that 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 sets him apart is that he's somebody who is talking about issues that are extremely relevant to the, to this generation. He's talking about student debt. Millennials have four times as much student debt as their parents. He's talking about. Uh, wealth inequality. Millennials have 34% less wealth than parents did at their age. He's talking about climate change. They're going to deal with it. He's talking about Medicare for all. They're significantly less likely to have employer-sponsored health insurance. Um, and what 
is very appealing to many millennials about him and which is kind of tied up in his age is this idea that not only is he saying these things, but he's been saying them for 40 years, even when they weren't popular. So that tells a lot of young people that he's not going to say one thing in a speech and then, you know, behind closed doors, meet with billionaires and change his position, um, which is something that they uh, are understandably very nervous about because the way money works in our political system, thanks to Citizens United, has meant that they have trouble trusting many of these liberal politicians who promise one thing and then have to do something else in order to get the donations they need to stay in power. How do they see the scope of these problems? Because many of the problems that that are being litigated today that Sanders is talking about, that millennials are, are, are reacting to, are kind of old problems as opposed to a whole set of newer problems that, that I think, you know, just as an example, Andrew Yang tried to articulate a little bit things that you would expect to be more millennial-driven issues. So I think that they're in some ways two sides of the same coin, because I think that what Sanders's millennial supporters are responding to is a strengthening of the social safety net that will make it easier for people to deal with some of these new problems. For example, the threat of automation um, is is less is a little bit less terrifying if you know that your health care isn't tied to your employer. You know, um, so there so the the idea, I think, for many of these young people and by the way, Andrew Yang did have significant overlap with Bernie Sanders. There are a lot of people who um, were looking at both of those candidates. But, um, you know, I, I think that what what Bernie's Sanders's millennial supporters are responding to is this idea that the 21st century economy is radically different than the 20th century economy. People have gig work. People do not get are much less likely to get a job with benefits. People are walking around with tremendous debt. They can't afford to buy houses. They can't afford, afford to buy cars. And that before you can solve those problems, you have to take care of people's basic needs, which are health care, housing, education, and and things like clean water, right? Um, and so what they are looking to him for is, you know, to get the government to actually get to work and solving those problems in a way where there's a baseline standard of living for people from which they can deal with all the new changes in the economy. Talk about the Republicans that, that you talk to and that you profile in this book, people like Dan Crenshaw and Elise Stefanik. It, it, it's really fascinating given that millennials, by and large, you know, by about a two-to-one margin, lean more liberal, more progressive. Talk about how these Republican millennials see themselves and see their role. So, yeah, I, I did talk to several Republicans for this book because, you know, as I mentioned Millennials do lean overwhelmingly to the left, but not all. And it's and it's a mistake to think that this is a uniformly democratic generation because it's just not. Um, but what I found was that over the course of the Obama presidency, uh, there were many young Republicans who were elected in that time, and Elise Stefanik and Carlos Curbelo are among them, who 
we're really trying to drag the Republican Party into the 21st century. They wanted there to be more women and young people. They wanted more diversity in the GOP. They believed in climate change and they wanted it to they they wanted the government to do something about it. They wanted to find conservative solutions to climate change. Um, and they were sort of uh, frustrated with some of their older Republican colleagues who continued to just flatly deny the science. Um, they wanted conservative, business-friendly solutions on immigration that were also humane. Um, they valued diversity as something that should be uh, you know, part of the conversation among Republicans. They looked for solutions on student debt that, that you know, weren't as extreme as canceling all student debt, but Elise Stefanik, for example, you know, pioneered some proposals to get you know, more Pell Grants, so it was more affordable for, for students to go to college. You know, so they, they were engaged on many of these same issues that young Democrats were engaged on, but they just had, you know, obviously completely different policy proposals to address them. Uh, but what happened is that then Trump happened, um, and Trump worked like napalm on this up-and-coming cohort of young Republicans. Um, young Republicans, uh, young Republican voters, uh, nearly half of them defected from the Republican Party over the course of 2015 to 2017. And of those half, about half of those went back. So roughly a quarter defected permanently and a quarter were kind of waffling and, and had left and then returned. So that means that Trump brought the GOP into real, real trouble with young people because he made, you know, they, they were on their way to getting somewhere that was some, somewhat aligned with where the millennial generation was going. And then Trump just knocked them way off track. So what I trace in the book is like sort of where the Republicans were going. And then in the Trump era, this kind of delicate dance that young Republicans have to do where they can either embrace him wholeheartedly, as Dan Crenshaw has done. They can try to defect from the party, as Justin Amash has done. They can sort of um, tiptoe around him a little bit and try to distance themselves from him, which is what Elise Stefanik was doing until recently. She's recently kind of full, fully embraced him. Um, or they can do what Carlos Curbelo did, which is loudly criticize him, you know, Try to try to stick to his uh, millennial conservative principles of being pro climate and pro immigrant, um, and then lose his seat in the 2018 midterms. So uh, the GOP is in a pickle when it comes to young people. Given this changing social landscape and all of this, how do these millennials look upon what happened to Katie Hill? It's a great question. So Katie Hill uh, was not one of my the subjects right. of my book. She was the roommate of one of my subjects. Right. Um, but, you know, I do think that Katie Hill is somebody who uh, in a lot of ways was in um, a sort of particularly millennial situation. Um, because let's be clear, you know, what she was accused of, which was having an affair uh, with somebody who worked for her, um, is something that if she were a man, it would just be like out, no question, that's a me too situation, right? Um, and so I think that there is a valid critique that, you know, why should she be treated differently just because she's a woman? There was a power imbalance in this 
relationship, you know, that would be problematic if she was a man. And like, I think that that's a really valid point. But one other aspect to this is the fact that there were photographs, right? right. Um, and, and the photographs are what made this scandal um, unwinnable for her because she might have been able to get out of this or she might have been able to survive if it was like an allegation of a relationship that was you know, by all accounts, totally consensual. I mean, the, 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 the person involved in this, with this relationship did not make a complaint of abuse of any kind, you know. Um, but the fact that there were these pictures made it something that was just not politically survivable for her. And that's what I think is really millennial about her situation is that there are always pictures. This generation has documented nearly every aspect of their lives. And for me as a journalist, it's fantastic because I was <laughs> able to find live videos that my subjects had posted on Facebook about specific events that I was writing about, right? So I didn't have to ask Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, oh, what was it like to go to Standing Rock? Because she videotaped her trip to Standing Rock, and I was able to write that chapter based off of live video footage of the actual experience that she was having. So that's a tremendous resource for um, journalists and future historians, but it's also something that's going to be politically complicated for this generation as they reach power. And finally, Charlotte, how do the millennials today see the generation past? How do they see what boomers have accomplished or not accomplished politically? How do they view them? I think it's complicated. I, I, I think that there is genuine respect for some of the social movements of the boomer era, like the civil rights movement and the feminist movement. And there's an acknowledgement that, for example, that generation that came before the baby boomers, um, you know, embraced segregation and many of their uh, universities and institutions and infrastructure that they built um, was very exclusionary. And, you know, some of that, most of that prosperity was not available to women and to people of color and that the boomers really um, opened up a lot of society and made and, and, and got rid of a lot of that discrimination. So I think that there is a, um, you know, a credit where due aspect to that. But I also think that uh, millennials are beginning to realize just how much boomer leaders, particularly in the Reagan era and also in the Clinton era, de-invested from uh, the social safety net and removed public funding from things that had been previously publicly funded to a tremendous extent. And I think college is a great example of that. Um, the reason that millennials have the amount of student debt that they have, the reason that college is so expensive and the reason that um, millennials have had to take on four times as much debt as their parents is because over the course of the last three or four decades, boomer politicians have repeatedly slashed education budgets. So it used to, so they've essentially transferred the cost of uh, paying for college from the state onto the student. And these are, again, public universities. They're supposed to be fu funded by taxpayer dollars. So um, I think millennials are seeing the extent to which boomer politics, which was very much rooted in, you know, 
kind of spanned between Reagan on the right and Clinton on the left. This politics of personal responsibility, the politics of, you know, lower, lower taxes and privatization uh, has left them holding the bag on so many of these issues. And that's why they want to kind of build a new system for a new century and a new generation. Charlotte Alter, her book is The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation of Leaders Will Transform America. Charlotte, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.